This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBorg. All right. Well, welcome to Pop Talk. And today my guest is Laura Woolley of The Collector's Lab. That's my scientific official sounding company. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome and thanks for um, taking the time to talk to me today. And if people want to find you online, I'll just give this out at the start. Your website is thecollectorslab.com. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your company just to start with? Well, the main... The main thing that I, I uh, wanted to do when I went out on my own was to set up appraisal work because there are thousands and thousands of appraisers in this world, um, in the fine arts world, but most of them are just that. They're fine art appraisers. So um, there are a lot of generalists who can do kind of the entire content of the house, but nobody likes to specialize in that world in anything that has kind of a celebrity or um, Hollywood twist to it because there's, it's hard to put a value on what something's worth because it belonged to someone famous. And in their world, everything has an intrinsic value. It's, it's worth something because of what it is, right. who it belonged to. So it's kind of a gray area, and that's what I loved about it. <laughs> I liked the fact that um, coming from this world, that I, I, I can honestly say that if you go through your average multiple consigner auction catalog, 98% of the things in those catalogs don't actually have value in and of themselves. Right. Actually, <laughs> most of their values derive from what they were used for, who wore them, who used it, who wrote on it, you know. Right. And I think that's an area that a lot of appraisers are not comfortable with. And I've heard so many times, a lot of times when people, um, fiduciaries or other attorneys and things like that, find me. They say, oh, my, I couldn't find anyone who was willing to take on this, this property. Um, so that's kind of a niche that I chose to get into. And what services do you offer? What does your company offer? Um, I, I do mostly appraisal work, which would be for insurance appraisals, for charitable donations, for um, estate tax purposes. I, I also have on the website that I, I would help to advise. I mean, I've gone to bid for clients before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone to go look at property on exhibition to kind of report back to them. Um, I've flown somewhere to look at a piece to examine it against photographic evidence to see if it was right before they decided to buy something mm-hmm. from a dealer. So anything in that realm. Um, I've done research for people. If they have a piece and they're trying to you know, figure out if things are right or find documentary evidence to back it up. I also have a huge library of auction catalogs. So a lot of times people know that, well, someone told me they bought it back at Butterfield in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. 
so I have all of those catalogs here. I'll go through and try and find it to you know back up their their claims. That just happened with a client that had a bunch of Elvis property, for instance, and they were told that it all came from one of those early Butterfield sales, and we were able to find it. And then being able to re-offer it at auction and say it was lot X in this sale on this date, and it was illustrated in that catalog, really helps uh, on that front. So it's a pretty wide range of things. Yeah, I know we talked in, before about um, your catalog collection, <laughs> and that you, you have it's the only thing I collect. Yeah. <laughs> so, how many auction catalogs do you think you have that are related to entertainment memorabilia and, and music memorabilia? I think specifically no duplicates. I probably have um, actually just the other day I was inputting. I keep a running spreadsheet of my inventory. I have about eight hundred. Wow. Entertainment auction catalogs, and it's, um, it's, I feel like there's just, there's no way to wrap your head around it, even though this industry, this, this business really, I mean, although you had MGM and the Fox Studio sales in the 70s, the main auction houses didn't really start doing it until the early 80s. Mm-hmm. You would think that with only 30 years to capture, you could do that, but I feel like I still have so many holds. <laughs> it's amazing how many catalogs are out. Just when I think I have them all, someone's like, oh, do you have that Gypsy Rose Lee sale that Doyle did back? And I'm like, uh, no, but I'll find it. And I did. So It's staggering. Every time someone has a question for me, they call and say, if you have this auction catalog, it kills me to have to say no. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just sends me on a hunt to go find it. So Yeah. But it's, um, it's everything from the lab listings, animation sales, to the Howard Lowry sales, to all the Camden House sales, to Superior Galleries, to, um, gosh, what was the other one? Heather. Oh, Holmberg. Yes, Heather yeah. Holmberg, uh, Richard <laughs> Wolfer. I mean, there's all these smaller niche auction houses, like Executive and yeah. Cooper Owen and all these guys who were doing stuff. And then the mainstreams, the Phillips Doyles, Sotheby's Christie's, Bonham's, Butterfield's. Yeah, I think I started picking up the Heather Holmberg ones maybe like two years ago or something. And there's actually a lot of really interesting pieces that went through those auctions. So There are, and the thing that kills me is I don't really have results from any of those. So um, that's the really killer part is trying to also match up all of the sale results. As we talked about before Sotheby shut their department down. Yeah, they're, they're online. <laughs> yeah, they're online, um, kind of online repository of, of results, right? Yeah, well, they they shut that down just recently, a couple weeks ago. But before they closed the actual collectibles department in 2008, uh, Lee Dunbar, who was running the department at the time, said, if if you want to come out here and fill in some gaps or look for, you know, some things you're missing, because she knew that a lot of the records were going to just go to the wind. Mm -hmm. So I spent an entire two days in the Sotheby's library copying all of the prices realized for every entertainment sale globally that I could find. Wow. And I have a binder now, and I think I have pretty complete Sotheby's results, which I'm so glad I did because now their online database is gone, even their price is realized. So. Wow. Hmm. Not that it was electronically that. I mean, it only went back to, I think, 98 anyway. But, um, right. But, yeah, it's just uh, I'm kind of – I collect information. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I know from, from writing on my blog – you know, I'm always linking to external things and sometimes I'll go back to something I read a few years ago and I'll click on the link and it'll be gone. So, because yeah. people always think once it's on the internet, it's it's always going to be there, but that's not the case. So. No, and you know what's funny about that? When I was working at Sotheby's in the late 90s, 
when they switched and transitioned over to Sotheby's.com, we had a very difficult time competing with Christie's at the time to get certain sales because a lot of the clients said, but you're putting it online. I want a real catalog. So we'd do these little pamphlet catalogs that were kind of highlights of the sales, but it wasn't a real catalog. So I would always go through and create binders, and I'd print every single page to keep a record of it off yeah. of Sotheby's.com. And now, you know, some of these binders are the only records that exist of the Marilyn Monroe items that sold wow. Sotheby's.com with the Bernie Simona Miracle Collection, her half-sister. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a Lone Ranger sale. There's no record of that. And, of course, Sotheby's kept saying, oh, but it'll be digital. It'll be there forever. But they've taken down all, all the access to it. So right. the clients are right. Yeah. Interesting. So, obviously, you have a lot of foresight into archiving things. So why don't we talk about, you know, where it all began, how you got interested in this field, you know, how you got started working with the auction companies and whatnot. So what's a good starting point? Um, Star Trek. <laughs> it's so funny that my approach to that with my brother, my brother is five years older than I am. And he was a huge Star Trek fan, uh-huh. the original series when we were kids. And he, uh, and he would you remember the old cassette decks that had the little orange button and the little oh, yeah. top button? You know, you know everyone yeah. knows that little orange piece <laughs> in the top button. We would put cassette tapes in, and we would record. Uh, we had audio recordings of all 79 original episodes <laughs> with a little chart on like a <laughs> poster board that we made, and we'd put all the names, and we'd have the tapes numbered. So every night when we'd go to bed, <laughs> we would pick our favorite episode to listen to to fall asleep. Wow. And mine were Shore Leave and Squire of Gothos. I was convinced for many years that Squire of Gothos was actually Liberace. <laughs> I thought they were the same person. But, um, yeah, I think in a weird way there was this need to kind of, like, archive the episodes. And um, because of, uh, as I told you, Star Trek's the reason I even got started in this. I started working at Sotheby's after I, I left college with an art history degree, which is what everybody has who works there. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of floating around the different apartments and landed in the collectibles department because I was interested in it. We came from a big movie family. My dad collected a lot of that kind of stuff. And uh, the day that they got the call to fly out to L.A. to start inventorying and cataloging all of Paramount Star Trek memorabilia for a possible sale, and this went back to 98 or 99. Hmm. It was in the works way before Christie's ever eventually got the sale much later in, what was that, 2008? Mm-hmm. And uh, we went in just to do a proposal, and they were doing all these mock advertisements, and the marketing people came into our department to show us their ad that they were proposing to put in this big proposal, and it said, set your tricorders to stun. <laughs> and I realized that nobody else in the department looked at that funny or turned their head or <laughs> looked at them like, what are you talking about? And so when I said something, they kind of all turned around at me and said, you know Star Trek? And I said, well, yeah. And they, they sent me out to work with Giles Moon, who was the entertainment guy there at the time. And the two of us spent I don't know, two months out here crawling around the warehouses, tagging everything and taking photos of everything. I think the, the spreadsheet that we made was, at the time, 100,000 items. Wow. And uh, that's obviously not everything that ended up in that sale, but even at the time, there was such a level of um, just things falling apart. They were out in warehouses in the middle of the valley where it's, you know, 110 degrees. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is what, what the condition was. You know, how I remember wanting to cry over the Borgs. There were these, you know, foam rubber Borgs sitting in crates in 100-degree heat, and you could tell they were 
you know, I, I remember going back and saying to one of the people I met at Paramount, like, I don't care what you guys do with this stuff, but someone needs to do something, and they mm-hmm. need to do it fast, because this is just, things are falling apart. There was one room that had a few remnants of original series um, tunics, and the fabric that they used at the time had some, like, uh, it was it was before spandex, so mm-hmm. they used kind of a rubber component in the fabric to make it. Uh. And what happened over time is this, this the shirts hanging on hangers, the sleeves actually were touching the ground. Wow. For the weight of the sleeve, it just released over time, and they just became like four times too long. And So I, it's just, you know, sad and really cool at the same time. Um, <laughs> I spent way too many t- many uh, minutes on each item because we had to go so fast. But when you get to the hand props and the tricorders and all the stickers, and the, I was so into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a kid in a candy shop, like, Getting to see everything close up. Very cool. So that was, you said, like, 98, 1998? Yeah, I, and then I, I left Sotheby's in 2001 with the very unceremonious axe swingings that were running around. I could tell <laughs> that it was going to come to our department very soon, so I started applying to grad schools. I thought, I need a plan B, because I have a feeling that this department's not going to be here in its current state, at the time, we had like 10 or 12 employees in our department. We'd expanded a lot, and I thought, we're just a low-hanging fruit here. <laughs> yeah. So what was it just that that department wasn't very profitable for them? It was always a low-hanging fruit. Um, I mean, you, you can't compete with Impressionist and modern painting sales ever, because in less lots, they make 100 times the amount of money you make, you know. Right. And the way auction houses always looked at it was, is that... Um, you know, if every piece that comes in that door is handled by 22 people and has 27 pieces of paper that are generated because of it, why don't we just focus on the things that are like $5,000 or more? Because then we'll get more out of all that effort and time. And I think that's their model now, um, which is why they completely shut the department down. But for a long time, I think they kept it around because even though it wasn't making as much money as the paintings department, it got more press than any department in the company. Mm-hmm which is true of uh, all of the auction houses. The entertainment stuff, just the stories get picked up. No one wants to report on an ancient coin hoard. It's just not as <laughs> sexy to the average person. Right. But everyone relates to Steve McQueen's motorcycles, or, you know. Right. So, uh, yeah, I left. I went to grad school. I left the country. And um, I really thought I was leaving this business. And when I came back, Darren Julian was setting up. Um, he was wanting to start doing live auctions. He'd only ever done online stuff at, up to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he flew me out to help him build the live auction business, which I did until after share. And after the amount of hours that went into that share auction, I thought, I'm going to work this hard for myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so I left. And it was it was a good time. I think they were, I mean, it was off and running. That sale right. was very successful. I'd finally... I spent more time when I was working for him. I, I didn't get to handle the property. I had to deal with getting the employees' health insurance and getting right. the IT system set up and coming up with software for the appraisal system and everything else. So it was nice to, when I left, I, I'm able to kind of get back to the property and, and why I like this business to begin with. Right. And that's that. So, yeah, and I, I uh, like most of the people who work in this field, don't really collect myself. I have... A very small number of things, and that's it. I don't really have a need to fill my house with it. So Right. So do you have any Star Trek pieces? I don't. 
No. My brother does. My brother has an original series signed script. He's he's more of the collector. This is the most interesting thing <laughs> about my background is that my father is 100% a collector. And my brother is 100% a collector, but they're completely the two opposite ends of the spectrum, which I see from, from day to day in, in my business. I think uh-huh. there are collectors who are 100% emotional collectors, uh-huh. and they don't care if they overpay for it because they're never planning to sell it. They just want to own it. Right. And you're going to pry their things out of their cold, dead hands. <laughs> Those are the, that's my brother. <laughs> and my dad's the one thinking, these are cool. I like them. They look neat. But I bet in 20 years I can sell them for four times the amount. Right. And that's exactly what he did. He built up a huge collection of um, vintage 30s and 40s cattle and radios. Yeah. And then he just sold the whole thing a few years ago at bottom. So he, he looks at it as a, an investment. Right. And uh, is constantly shaking his head when he looks at what my brother buys, saying, well, you're never going to get your money out of that. And the response is always, I don't care. <laughs> so so it kind of, I have a perspective on both approaches. And I see hybrids of that with most of the people I, I deal with. Right. I don't know what kind of collector you are, but. Um, I'm definitely on the emotional side. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> I also, I, you know, and then there's dealers, and that's just even more mercenary than my dad. <laughs> can I flip it tomorrow, not in 20 years? Right. So, <laughs> or can I sell it before I've even bought it from the source? <laughs> you're not kidding. That happened. When I worked at Julian's, we had a guy who bought a large prop from a film, as I'll say, and um, mm. he hadn't even paid for it or collected it. Right. And one of our employees saw it listed with our same photo that he took off the line <laughs> on eBay. Yeah, and he was waiting to pay for it to see if he could get someone to buy it on eBay. And which, you know, <laughs> the gall of people in this world never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've seen some pretty funny stuff. So I found you because I got a call from a guy who came across my site, and he said he had the um, wood chipper from Fargo, and he wanted to know what it was worth. He wasn't interested in selling it. He just wanted to get it insured. And uh, that's how I, I came to found you. And I think you spoke to him. But how, why don't you tell us how you approach something like that? Because basically what I told him was, you know, it's not like you can look at, you know, a wood chipper that's sold from some other movie because that's just so specific. And, you know, kind of what I was telling him is, you know, you'd, you'd probably, and I don't think I've ever even seen anything sold from Fargo. So I said, you know, you'd probably want to find something key from a similar movie, you know, that's comparable, but obviously it's still going to be kind of apples and oranges. So then it really got me thinking about um, the appraising side of the field. And, uh, you know, that's, that's when we started talking and, and I just find it really interesting. So how do you approach something like that piece? Well, it's a good question. I, first of all, I, I love that guy because <laughs> not only does is he calling about the wood chipper, he had, such a Fargo accent. Yeah, exactly. In my mind, I was like, "Well, there's no question this guy really does have it." Cause yeah, you know I mean? that that lends to the the authenticity of the piece. Absolutely, the credibility of it. It's just like this all makes sense. And, right. and um, well, we we did have a brief conversation, and you know, I I didn't feel that he needed a formal written appraisal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and usually the what you need a formal written appraisal for is if you have a, a huge collection of things, and a lot of people just assume that the contents of their house are going to be covered by their, you know, household personal property 
policy if something were to happen. And in this world, they're not. I mean, you really have to come up with, an, at the very least, at least have an inventory and photographs of everything you own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's better to agree ahead of time with the insurance company how much they're going to pay you for it if something happens to it. Right. And that's where the appraisal comes in. So my, I probably spend more time telling people they don't need my services <laughs> than I do actually doing appraisals. And I, I really am not kidding about that because so many people call, for instance, uh, and I'll get back to the wood chipper. A woman <laughs> called who purchased a Michael Jackson drawing at an auction, and she paid, I think, $35,000 for it. Wow. Or 30000 for it. And the insurance company... She sent them the invoice, and usually you can call them and say, "Add this to my policy," and add it as a line item, and and uh, she, you know she sent the invoice to prove what she paid for it, and they said, "We don't believe you. Hmm. We need a we need a formal appraisal," because to them it just seemed crazy. They weren't aware of what's going on in the Michael Jackson market right now. Right. They just couldn't believe that this little simple drawing was worth that much. So then she had to hire me to do a formal written document, and then once she had that done, they were happy to agree on that number. And I told her they should have agreed to her invoice because I'm going to insure it for more because what she paid for it was actually <laughs> fair market. So right. you know I was putting a retail replacement value on it, and now they're insuring it for more than what she paid, which is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for this guy, um, you know, we just had an informal conversation. I kind of wanted to know why he needed it, and he ex- he explained specifically that um, it's currently, I guess, at the tourism center in Fargo. Mm-hmm. And they'd like to keep it there permanently, but it's on loan. So they need to come up with a value because the guy who owns it wants to sell it to him, but they don't want to take advantage of him and not paying him enough. And, you know, at the end of the day, with a piece like that, I started with him by finding out how much it's intrinsically worth. Right. Wood chippers cost money. And he said that's around a $5,000 piece of equipment. And then you can play with numbers and say, well, to mark it up for the fact that it was in the movie and for it was retail, you know, you could add 20, 30% to that. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, what we kind of talked around is, at the end of the day, you're the best purchaser of this piece. If you were to put this in an auction, if I, if I were working for an auction company and I had this in my catalog, I would want to make sure it's sold, so I might do some phone calls to call some people who might be interested, and the first place I'd call is the Tourism Center in Fargo. <laughs> right. Perfect place for that to live. Um, right. And there aren't many people who are going to want to have that, big thing it's not something you can put on a shelf in your house um you know so we talked about that and i said you're probably the best place for it and if you're probably the most eligible buyer for something like this at the end of the day it's worth what you as the tourism center could afford to pay for it Mm -hmm. and if you guys have a budget and you can swing twelve fifteen thousand dollars that's probably a fair price right right who else is going to put that on their property um and really use it to its best use so that's one way. I mean, I, I, to him, I said, you know, the most, when I mean, you're thinking of gruesome props, like the first thing <laughs> that came to mind is like the horse head from The Godfather right. or <laughs> other stuff like that. And, you know, we don't know where a lot of those things are. So it's kind of hard to find a comparable a lot of times. So um, in this case, we kind of looked at who's who's the best market for something like this. So mm-hmm. it's always different. This is what I like about it. Yeah. Now, I know there's some insurance companies that specialize in this kind of um, material. Like, you know, I've, I've worked with a collectibles insurance agency before. Um, you know, what advice would you give to collectors as far as, and I, and I know it's different, you know, in the UK versus the United States, but, um, 
you know, would you try to work something out with your homeowner policy carrier or would you go to a specialist? It depends on who they are. I mean, most uh, Chubb's obviously the best known in this country for fine art. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, Chubb is probably has the reputation for being one of the fastest payers and not arguing. Right. If you have uh, a itemized listing and you submit it and you have an agreed upon price, there's not going to be a question about it. They just pay you. Right. Um, but you do have to have an itemized appraisal listing, which they recommend being updated every three to five years. Um, Lloyd's of London, obviously, is among the top. And those, again, are the same companies that insure your home. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's always best to keep your insurance with the same people who do your home because they can off- offer block discounts okay. on things. I mean, I think the more you do with business with one company, if for some reason, though, they're they're balking at the values and things, the premiums are going to be crazy. It's the best industry in the world to shop around because they will all undercut each other. Right, right. So I would never stick with it. But if they're willing to work with you because you have other business with them, like your cars and your home, it's a good place to start. Many of them don't often even require it, though. That's, that's, that's why I spend a lot of time talking people out of If you just have one item, mm-hmm. and it's not something that's you know in the six-figure range, um, and you say, look, I have this, I don't even know, uh, you know, $1,500 hand prop that you bought from some place, if you have the invoice, Many home insurance policies, they're happy to just add that one item in without a formal appraisal. You really need to start setting it in stone when you have you know, vast collections or you're talking about much bigger numbers. Or, for instance, that drawing that was $30,000. I mean, it, the average person, when they heard that, if they're not aware of this industry, might think that sounds odd. So right. they want to you know, obviously keep fraud down and not agree to something and then next week say, oh, it, it hit a candle and it burns. I need my thirty grand." So <laughs> So that's, yeah. I had asked a couple friends if they had some questions for you, and one of them asked about um, succession planning for a personal collection. What kinds of things are you seeing, and what are best practices, and you know, what advice do you have in that area? Well, um, I have a couple clients who every time they purchase at auction, I update their appraisal, and they have two running appraisals. They have estate planning, and they have their insurance appraisals, and they're constantly updating. So if anything were to happen at any moment in time, um, you know, they have trust and estates attorneys who run their estate, and they have, it, it falls into a bucket of assets like everything else that they own. So it kind of mm-hmm. just is good to stay on top of it and keep it current. Um, many people might not even have a listing of items like that. Most people, when they pass away, unless they have goods exceeding $300,000, don't need to even file formal appraisals. But there's so many different regulations. And as you know, taxes or tax laws change constantly. So mm-hmm. it's definitely something to uh, talk to your tax accountants and your attorneys about if you have a, an estate situation. Um, oftentimes, though, you know, people pass things on while they're still alive. So Right. And they just gift it to someone in while they're here to watch them enjoy it. So, I mean, in my experience, that just seems like it makes more sense. Although that doesn't usually happen, but it, you know, if you're eventually going to pass something on to someone anyway, and you're not enjoying it anymore, why not be here to see them enjoy it too? Right. Yeah. And another question um, a friend of mine had asked me is about tax planning and um, 
preparing to sell like a collection of high-end valuable pieces. Um, if you have any thoughts like on documentation, capital gains, um, the implication of trades, like let's say he built his collection by, you know, trading one thing and then trading that for something else. Is that something you get into or do you just refer them to tax accountants and attorneys? Well, for that kind of stuff, I will say that um, I do refer them to tax accountants. But, uh, you know, what we're, this question pretty much circles around uh, this crazy nebulous concept called cost basis. And mm-hmm. that is most collectors accumulate things over the course of 15, 20 years. So if they were to sell it, you're right to the nut of the matter. How do you know what, what your profit is? Because it's right. so hard to track what you've paid for things over time. And that is precisely why auction houses do not 1099 the income that they pay out to their consigners. Mm-hmm. So what you do with that information with your tax accountant is your, your own business. <laughs> But, uh, you know, then the reason they don't is because it would be exceedingly difficult. It would probably shut the auction industry down for the accountants within the auction house to have to figure out, well, what's the amount they're 1099 them for? Like, what's the cost basis for the property they consigned? Well, you know, there are people who have had an impressionist painting passed down through three generations. Hmm. And theoretically, they paid, well, who even knows what they paid? Many of these right. people don't have records anymore. It happened so long ago. So what's their cost basis for that? I mean, it's it's an issue. Um, I can say that there are many clients who have things wired to off-the accounts <laughs> because it's not being 1099 and you know the government's aware of that. It's it's this thing that though, what do you do? Um, because it's it's impossible to keep records. If you're someone who has, that's great. Then you get to see you know how well you've done, mm-hmm. and you sit down with your accountant. You can file you know exactly if you know specifically. Um, you know, people who don't have specific records, I'm sure they must have to just come up with them. I mean, an estimated figure, I don't really know. That's something for a tax accountant. But what I would be called in to do generally is if it's not a sales situation, I can give a current market value appraisal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can constantly tell you what things are worth right now. There are such things as retroactive appraisals. Or if perhaps, for instance, if you didn't have records, you could have an appraisal done to say what would these 10 things have been worth 30 years ago, if you mm-hmm. knew approximately when you purchased them. And you could go back and do the research for comps at that time and come up with a retroactive appraisal for that date, what the fair market would have been. Um, so there's a lot of different ways around it, but most of it boils down to what you do with your accountant. Mm-hmm. So what what do your appraisals look like? Like I, I, we, I know we talked before because I'm in real estate and I see you know a lot of real estate appraisals and um, you know your education you said that you as part of your studies there's some overlap in that like what does an appraisal look like for a movie prop or costume um there's a lot of boilerplate stuff that has to go into it and i've actually had people call before and say i need an appraisal for my Mick jagger guitar and i say that's great you know it's be probably this many hours. You know, you, most people are used to watching Roadshow and they see us do stuff in five minutes. Right. And so <laughs> makes it me, look really easy. <laughs> I know. And, you know, we're, we're just flying by the seat of our pants. I mean, we're, we're looking things up occasionally, but most of the time you're just kind of going on gut instinct and you have plenty of colleagues on either side of you to bounce things off of. And there's such a huge uh, number of expertise specialties at, at any given area there. Right. Um, so it's it's actually it's remarkable how much information um, 
were able to come up with quickly. But when you're sitting down to do a formal appraisal, you have to put it on paper. So while they see it, you know, if we're just doing something verbal, it's very easy to say in five minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't do that. If it's for a charitable donation, the IRS requires that I show you three comparables with photos of those comparables. If the item's $50,000 or more, um, so an appraisal would have a lot of kind of boilerplate stuff, and the clients will call and say, but what, that's crazy, you know, how much per hour, and it's going to take you four hours, and it's like, well, this is a 22-page report. <laughs> it might not be more than one thing, but you have uh, the cover letter, you have your table of contents, you have, I usually do kind of an uh, artist biography or historical context for what the piece is to set it up. Uh-huh. Um, then I have the description of it, photographs, comparables with photographs of other pieces, in there. Um, then you'll have what you, most people call either a market analysis or evaluation summary, where you basically discuss what factors you took into account. For instance, it's a single item might be this, or if it's a collection of them, I might say I added a premium to the fact that this is already a complete archive of everything to do with this, and so that actually is even better than having these pieces individually. The sum is more than their parts. Um, and you explain that. It's your area to explain anything like that. This condition's better than anyone that's ever come up for sale, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have your uh, signed certification, which are all these statements that you have to make, all these disclaimers and uh, limiting conditions. Then you have your scope of work that lists out all sorts of technical details of it for all the nerds. And, the <laughs> and then the privacy policy statement. We now have to comply with what the banks have to deal with, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act for not disclosing personal information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could have a glossary, a bibliography, depending on maybe some appendices. If there's letters that you want to put with it, like authenticity letters that go with the property. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of different stuff. And um, like I said, some insurance companies don't care. Mm-hmm. Some insurance companies start to care when the prices get higher. <laughs> some insurance companies care all the time. And the IRS always cares. Yeah. <laughs> so charitable donation, um, gift tax, and estate appraisal are the you know the big IRS needs, and uh, they're the ones who put forth all of these requirements. They are really cracking down on on formulating what it is to be an official certified appraisal, to have a qualified appraiser, um, pretty much to shut down the days when dealers would write letters to go with the piece they just sold someone, saying it's worth X Y Z clearly an inherent conflict of interest mm-hmm. if you're the guy who just sold it to them and you're the one writing a letter saying it's worth this much. Well, of course you're going to say that. Right. Um, so, and that's happened a lot. There's, you know, a lot of, as we've all discussed, lots of fraud. Mm-hmm. So touching on um, what, what you just said about conflict of interest, you know, one thing I've always wondered about, um, you know, with these auction houses, they're, at least to the public, they're the ones that are authenticating it and saying it's real. And of course, they have all their disclaimers in their auction catalog saying, yeah, it's really on, you know, the burden's on the purchaser to do their own due diligence. But from your work in the industry, what is your sense of how much um, of a sale is looked at by third party professional, you know, authenticators or experts in, you know, particular type of piece you know whether it's wardrobe or props or from a certain show or something and and what percentage do you think is just the auction house sort of taking the word of the consigner and just listing it in their sale um well one i would say that it's i i don't think 
I ever took a word of a consigner on anything. I mean, every time I, because I, I still do consult and catalog for a number of different auction companies. Uh-huh. And, um, well, I, well, I forget the, uh, I forget James Commissar's nickname for himself. He's the, the Grim Reaper. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, I've often been called negative because every time they get so excited and show me a piece, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. How do we know? <laughs> so I, for one, I mean, I can speak for myself. I just don't trust anything. I, you always have to go check it out. I, I had a, a piece come in with this great letter from a guy who was a sound man for a band, and um, it was all this equipment that was used. And it's a really popular band from the 60s, and as I'm reading through it, it's like, and, you know, it's from 19... 19- X, whatever, and I was thinking, well, the lead singer was dead by that time, so, you know, like, I think we're dead in the water right here on this property. Like, the letter itself is just, you know, so I can't imagine most most uh, auction houses trust, and we've all talked about this. I'm friends with most of the people um, who work, you know, Margaret Barrett, and um, Simeon still, I think, works at Christie's sometimes, uh, Dana Hawks, who does animation over at Bonham's. Um, we, we've all talked about these things. We all go out for drinks about uh, crazy stories about clients who don't even know what they have. And the, the ones that kill you are the celebrities who send you a concert-worn outfit and say it was from this tour. And you're looking through photos, and you're like, I can't find a picture of them wearing it. This is crazy. And then you go to the previous tour, and they're like, oh, well, there it is. <laughs> you contact them and say, well, you actually wore it in this tour. No, no, I, I remember clearly because I remember there was excess of that. And you're like, well... <laughs> I have a photo of you wearing it in the other one, and there's kind of dead silence. <laughs> and and it speaks to the fact, this is why eyewitness accounts suck, um, people just remember things wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, as a policy, I can't imagine that anyone there takes the consigner's word. Sometimes, however, um, the consigner's word's all you have. Mm-hmm. And there was a recent piece that just went up in an auction uh, this past month, and I was contacted by uh, Howard Kramer at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he just wanted to know more information, like, can you go take take a look? And we were corresponding about it for two or three weeks coming up to the auction, and finally, you know, I'd sent some questions to be sent off to the consigner, and their answer came back via email, and I sent it to him, and he called, and he said, you know what, at the end of the day, I, I just believe her. Mm-hmm. The story sounds totally credible. I don't think there's any, re- any lying going on here. Like, the whole thing just 100% made sense, and... I, I think sometimes it's the auction house's job to get out of the way and let that story speak and let the buyer decide there's no more they can do to prove it. And, and uh, I'd heard your conversation with James, and he said sometimes, you know, he spent 20 or 30 hours, and at the end of the day he said to the client, I'm 70% sure it's not right, mm-hmm. but I'll never be 100% sure. And on pieces like that, um, I think you have to let the buyers decide. I think you present everything you have. And uh, Margaret's famous for this. Margaret puts, put, used to put descriptions in the Bottoms catalog saying, look, according to the consigner, <laughs> this is what happened. And it was kind of a side note and just said, look, it's a this, it's a this. And according to the consigner, it was used by so-and-so and whatever. And, you know, she was even kind of not owning it. It's like, look, this is what they said. So if you believe it and it sounds like a plausible story, then bid. If not, then don't bid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the problem comes in when not everything's disclosed. Right. Well, yeah, and see what I see is, you know, a lot of, because I don't want to name names, but I mean, there. if I look at an auction catalog and there's a two-sentence description that says, you know, this is the hero or whatever used by this movie star in this movie, and that's pretty much it. Yep. It doesn't give the public any 
confidence or even inkling that there's been any research done whatsoever. And the I other agree. and the the other thing that really bothers me is I know a lot of times people will send something to an auction house as a consigner and they'll include like a COA from a certain dealer and maybe some other paperwork that's related and whatnot. And then none of that is passed on to the next buyer. So it's like whatever history there was that was attached to the piece is now kind of just tossed because, you know, I think a lot of times one dealer or auction house, they don't want their customer to know that any other auction house or dealer exists. So they just kind of toss, you know, the the previous paperwork. And uh, I I just think that's a really big problem. I think that's a shame. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I personally just hate letters of authenticity, mm-hmm. and I, I, I know that that's probably been discussed ad nauseum, but it's, they're so easy to fake. I know yeah. Heritage was doing stuff with these crazy holograms that are difficult to fake, um, but at the end of the day, I kind of feel like if, if you need that, like people always on eBay say, I have a letter of authenticity, and then I look and say, well, who's it from? Yeah, newly, newly minted. Person, right? <laughs> so it gives this weird sense of false security to a lot of people. And at the end of the day, it matters who it's from. And people who are super reputable don't make them mm-hmm. because they know they can be faked and reused. And um, I kind of have always felt that if you have been doing your job and have really worked hard to, to try and keep the bad stuff out of your auctions, and, uh, you know, you'd mentioned Christie's and Sotheby's and the big ones, like, they have limited guarantees on it. Mm-hmm. The difference between... I I draw a line between people who sell bad stuff and know they're doing it Mm -hmm. and people who sell bad stuff and didn't realize. And I'm not saying either one is acceptable, Mm -hmm. but bad stuff is out there. It happens. Every single auction house has sold something bad. They're only as good as the people working in the department at that time. And there's a lot of turnover. And, you know, sometimes there's been one bad employee at an auction house for two years that let some bad stuff in, and now they have a terrible reputation forever. Um, and it really, it's like, who's the specialist at it? That's, that's hugely important. Um, but I don't think they should all be damned for the work of one or two people that did some bad stuff. But I draw the line between, and this is important for the buyers, if, if you buy something from someone who knows they're selling you something bad, they're not going to refund your money. If you get something and you have a reason to have a suspicion later, any reputable auction house is going to refund your money and be happy to take it back and want to just get rid of it and put that behind them because they they don't want to sell fake stuff either because it ruins their reputation. Right. If there's someone who cares about reputation and longevity. I mean, you have people who set up shop and they're gone. Um, and that's that's a tough one. It's, it's hard to know with dealers if they're going to stand behind their pieces or not. Um, many of them do. If they have any hope of making a living past the first year or two, they better refund money if someone doesn't like something because they're not going to last very long if they don't. Right. But but I agree. I mean, as far as what percentage is looked at by specialists, it, it's, it's as different as the auctions themselves. If it, it, It's always different. Very, like if there's a celebrity sale, it's very different because you don't need to do that because you right. have a person standing right there to do it. And I've right. worked on a lot of those where it's, you know, I spent six months learning everything share and um, still had to go look through 130 VHS tapes of every Sonny and Cher episode or Cher <laughs> show episode because I wanted to identify which show she wore each dress singing what song. Right. Because I am like that and I like research. And and I th- and we had screenshots of her in every single one. Unfortunately, they would only let me have the tapes for two days over the weekend. So 
I strapped myself to a chair <laughs> and ordered pizza. But, um, you know, that's one situation. But she didn't even know where they were from. I mean, we had to go do that for her. So even if you have the celebrity, sometimes you don't know. Um, and they have bad memory. If it's a multi-consigner sale um, and there's a lot of very specific material that's something that they don't usually handle, like a lot of, say, really high-end vintage guitars, mm-hmm. um, Oftentimes, I know Christie's always brought Richie Friedman in to look at every every guitar they ever had. Um, to be sure, not that they didn't already on have on staff Carrie Keene, who's now doing vintage guitar auctions, um, and he really knows his stuff. It's just easier to get someone for a day to come in and go over it all and be done. Um, most of the big auction houses, when they were doing their movie poster sales, those were 100% curated by specific movie poster dealers. Jose Carpio was at Sotheby's. And Christie's and Tony Norman did a lot of the Christie's sales, and he's one of the most respected poster people out there. Um, so it's really specific. Um, I'm sure the smaller regional auction houses don't have the budget to bring people in like that as, as frequently. But I'd say a lot of phone calls are made. Um, a lot of it's kind of ground ball stuff. The, the worst part of this whole industry, I think, are the autographs. Yeah, you know, that's funny because that's what I was going to ask you next was about yeah. autographs. And I think that's the one, like, if there was some end-all, be-all person, um, it would be great if everyone consulted them. And there are a number of authentication authentication services out there. But, oh, I mean, the sports industry is 100% giving itself over to PSA DNA. Mm-hmm. You just can't sell signed sports memorabilia without their sticker of approval. It's kind of become the nature of the beast. Right. Um but I get calls from people all the time who say, can you authenticate this for me? And I say, no. <laughs> I say, because you'd pay me, and even though I'd give it my seal of approval, if you take it to um, Bonham's and the specialist there doesn't like it, they don't care that I said it. I thought it looked good. Right. It might sway someone, but it, I, you know, I always tell them if you're thinking about selling it, just take it to an auction house, and if they accept it, that means their specialist thought it looked right. Right. And if they reject it, they thought it looked wrong. Yeah, that's funny because I've given people the same advice about certain um, movie memorabilia pieces. I said, well, you know, if you think it's real, see if an auction house will will take it under consignment because at least then you're getting some free um, authentication advice on it, you know. Yeah, and you know what? You're not scot-free just because they take it through the door because that's the first step. And then the research starts. And I can't tell you how many pieces I reject once I sit down to start cataloging them. I mean, mm-hmm. if you see stuff that makes it into the catalogs, you have no idea how many pieces never make it into the catalogs. Well, so. see, I think that's a shame because I think people don't realize that. I think the perception is of people who have become jaded, you know, justifiably so about the hobby is that they they see a catalog and they think there has been no quality control. It's just they're well, just taking consignments. You know, right. I can only speak to the, the items I have cataloged. Um, and I've done cataloging for Heritage. Uh, I've done cataloging for Bonhams. I've done cataloging, at, obviously, at Sotheby's and at Christie's and at Julian's. And I can only speak to the ones I do. I know right. a lot of the people I've worked with um, do good work. But like I said, it always comes down to, you know, I've had stuff in a catalog that I cataloged next to bad stuff that someone else cataloged. Right. <laughs> You know, you, we'll catch it, and if we catch it, we would draw it. I mean, it's just the way it works. And mm-hmm. um, I would say, obviously, because I have a long history. I've known Darren since I was at Sotheby's, but 
he never ever questions if I I, I called him about a piece um, and said I don't think it, it was already in his catalog and it gone two seconds. If there's any question about it, he'd rather pull it mm-hmm. than have any question hanging over the head. And I think that's right. the way it has to be with slices because um, otherwise, you know, it, it's a huge headache for the auction houses to have bad stuff floating out there with their name behind it. Right. Because it continues to make them look bad. So it's not. I mean, I know the perception is that it's all about money, and everyone needs to hit their numbers and make the money, but the auction business is not like a, a widget you know, mm-hmm. company. Um, exactly. So there are targets, sales targets, but sometimes the property doesn't come in, and it's not as though they're shutting the department down the minute uh, you know, that they didn't hit their numbers one season. So it's... I mean, and, and departments have been shut down, but that's been more of a kind of global economic situation, I'm sure. Um, but a lot of the, the niche places, you know, Heritage is happy to, they, they're very keen to expand that department right now. They're, they're in no danger of, you know, not hitting a number and shutting down. Um, so the people there really are left, it, it's an odd business to be in because each department in a, in a large auction house is kind of its own little business. Mm-hmm. You're kind of responsible for running your business, and like I said, there's been great people running those and bad people. Um, mostly good. I mean, I don't think um, I can count on one hand people who I thought were just. It's usually more out of laziness than it is out of malice, mm-hmm. um, because it's it can be it can be really uh, time consuming, and I think uh, depending on what the sales schedule is like. The only thing that affects the ability to do quality control is the timing and having to get stuff done. And that varies from place to place. Like I said, I can only speak to where I've been doing things, but there was a piece uh, recently Darren had, and he wanted to put it in this past June auction, and he asked me to research it, and I said, it's going to take more time. Well, it's not in that sale. He's going to wait and put it in a later sale so we can take the time to do more research on it. So, mm-hmm. um, again, these are just my own experiences, but... It's it's in the, their best interest too because the more things come across just right, the more they're going to go for. Right. I, I look at bad cataloging as just such a lost opportunity to tell a story and sell a piece. Right. Yeah. Because those two sentence descriptions drive me crazy because I want to know more too. Like, well, did you look it up? Did you screen grab it? Did you actually go photo match it against the thing? Like, even if you can't use the image, can you tell me that you did that? Right. Yeah. And that's what's kind of interesting to me, because I think there's just so many dynamics in play. I mean, part of it's just economical. Their catalog can only be, you know, so many pages. But at the same time, I mean, if it's a business, and you're trying to generate the highest, you know, price possible for whatever it is you're selling, I mean, there's certain buyers where, the provenance is what's really going to get them to bid high on it. And if it's really not present, you know, in the description or, or, you know, in the catalog somewhere, why it is authentic, you know, it, it seems like it's, you know, there, it seems like there's more, there's more good, good reasons for having really lengthy detailed description than there are reasons not to do so. Yeah, I would say the only thing that I um, write two-sentence descriptions about are assigned Michael Jackson photograph. Right. Yeah, there's not much more for me It is what it is, right. I usually try to say what the image is from. It was taken from the photo shoot for this album by this photographer or give you some 
little background fees, but right. you know, there are certain things that don't lend themselves to um, wordy descriptions, but there's great stories with some pieces, and I've always said that we're really in the business of selling stories, mm-hmm. because that's what makes someone buy it. it it's this thing that's going to sit on the shelf in their house, and when the guest comes over, they're going to say, hey, what's that? And you're going to go, <laughs> oh, well, and if there's a cool story to go with it, right? and that's what you have to put in the description to kind of grab people's attention, and it. I think for far too long, the um, coming from Sotheby's, it's way too elitist. I mean, I, I had I can't tell you how many people um, asked me if they needed tickets to come to the auction <laughs> because that was the perception there, and it's the snooty. Right. Do I need to wear a tuxedo? Because they see <laughs> that one sale a year they put on the news is the impressionist evening session where everyone's in black tie. Oh, yeah. You know, and then the comic sales would come around, and there's all like the comic guys coming in with their Alfred E. Newman shirts. You know? <laughs> And I think uh, it's it's getting better, but I still, on some level, feel like there's so many people who are intimidated by the auction process mm-hmm. and the live auction kind of format that um, there are a lot of new buyers to the scene. And I kind of feel like when we're writing descriptions, I'm not trying to uh, to pander, like or, you know, just be condescending. But there are right. a lot of people who don't know right. why this is important in their right. career. And I'm sure, you know, dealers and people who know this stuff are thinking, like, well, obviously. Right. But it's not obvious to, you know, a lot of people. And there a lot of new buyers have come in because they didn't realize, oh, well, that's really important because they don't know. Right. Yeah, so. and that's and that's really where, you know, like every year I go to um, Comic-Con in San Diego, which is in a couple of weeks from now, and I'll, you know, hang out at the booth, you know, with the prop store guys. And to me, the most fascinating thing is just watching people look at their original props that they have in their cases and it takes them a moment to even figure out what they're looking at and kind of get, Oh, that's, that's from that move. That's actually what was used in, you know, so people forget that sort of introductory moment where people are first exposed to this stuff. And, and it really does require some explanation, you know? Yeah. I don't know about you, but when I flip through an auction catalog, I'm a really visual person. So mm-hmm. I don't even read the descriptions. I just visually look through it first. Right. And I look at all the pictures and right. then certain objects grab my attention and then I'll read. Right. Exactly. And then eventually I'll go back through and do a more careful kind of look through, but I just scan it for stuff I recognize initially. And, you know, I might recognize it and find out, oh, well, this was a foam piece made for a comic book store display and it wasn't actually used in the film, but mm-hmm. I, you know, but I, ran my eye towards it because I thought that it was real Mars Attacks head. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's how I work, but everybody's different. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my brother bought a, <laughs> from from the uh, the prop store guys at the last Comic-Con, a piece of their Serenity bank robbery money. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and he was the same thing. It was like, oh, this was in that scene where they went in and they blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, right. you need to know the background, and unless you're like a crazy Serenity fan like he is. And <laughs> you'd have to tell that story. So. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, the autographs just drive me crazy, to be honest. I, that, that's the biggest, and it's the hardest, and it's the most objective. Right. Well, it's um, the easiest thing to fake. And it, it is. And then the potential profit from doing something so simple is huge. So it's it's just... I, the only autographs I have are autographs like, got from people myself personal and I saw them do it and it's not very many but other than that I mean it, it it's just one of those things how can you really be sure 
and that's that's the one where I would say is the biggest just buyer beware with any auction house because the, for example uh, a set of Beatles autographs when Margaret was at uh, Bonham's she emailed me a, a picture of four and she said what do you think of these and she also sent them to Giles who was in who's now in Australia Giles Moon who I'd worked with at Sotheby's mm-hmm. and she also sent them to Stephen Maycock who's with Bonham's uh, Consulting over in London. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us had a different opinion. <laughs> and it was, you know, Stephen's like, well, I think the George and the Ringo look good, but the John and the Paul look like they're by so-and-so. And Giles <laughs> thought something else, and I thought, well, I thought the George looked good, but I thought, you know, I mean, and, and you know, Stephen's been doing this for, I don't even know, decades, and Giles has been doing it for 30 years, and I've been in it for, like, 14 at this point, and, and Margaret's been in it for probably... Money. So I, I just feel like it's one of those things, unless you have a photograph, no one can tell you that, that uh, right. they signed this. And uh, it's impossible, and it's still a very popular collecting area, but um, everyone's got to be aware of the fact. And a lot of these were selling, I think, before the scholarship really caught up. Mm-hmm. And before everyone knew that um, you know Neil Aspinall or Mal Evans might have been signing things behind the scenes, and and everyone got to know what their Paul looked like or their John or mm-hmm. so a lot of the auction houses put good provenance on them, selling them back in the very early days of this business before anyone even knew that the, these secretarials existed. And now maybe someone would know that, right? But it now has the provenance of it came from this place, so it's 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 the biggest mess out there. I right. think. And I, I'm not trying to say people shouldn't collect autographs, but there's just a certain um, you know, if you have a photo of them signing it, which is only the newer end of the business, but some of those early autograph books that people went around collecting autographs from people, mm-hmm. those are always, I have very few problems with those because they were often very sweet. And right. you can tell that it was like a teenage kid who ran into these people and went up and got the autographs. Like you said, you got yours in person. Right. Um, I mean, is it possible someone ran it backstage and signed it? Yes. But um, those I've seen less issues with. I think the thing that we're talking about is the people who are just manufacturing them right now. Right. Or that guitar company who was just using yeah. Photoshop. Yeah. And it wasn't even good Photoshop. No, it was like really, you know, pixelated and just bad, you know, splicing. And I don't know. It's, um, I guess for some people, certain activities, it's just like printing money and they just, if they're that lazy, then they probably aren't very good at, creating fakes either i guess is sort of my philosophy on it yeah and i think uh i think some people don't even care yeah i think as long as they can put it in a frame and tell their friends that's who signed it right uh, at the end of the day i don't think they care some people are more purists and uh are disgusted by it yeah well you know i get i get the periodic phone call of people who aren't collectors of anything and they might buy something on ebay and then call me and ask me if, if it's real. And, you know, I don't really give advice to strangers of something I haven't seen, whether it's real or not. But generally, my impression is that it's not. But they don't really seem to care either. <laughs> so it's, I don't know. I think they just, they call because they want to feel better about what they've bought. And then if, you know. Well, I often ask, like, well, how much did you pay for it? I mean, it's it's one of those things that if you bought it from a dealer... Yeah, it'll be like 20 bucks or something. Right. Well, and, then obviously it's not right, because right. a dealer wouldn't sell you something real for 20 bucks. They exactly. would tell you it's real, and it's worth 500 I Right. Mean, 
it's it's one of those common sense things that at the end of the day it is buyer beware. Although I do think that perhaps more effort is made um, than is probably perceived. And again, I can only speak to the places I've worked, um, and and the you know when I've approached it, and uh, most of the people I've worked with are pretty diligent. And you don't get into this this area as a career um, unless you actually enjoy it. Right. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> And and if you do, I always thought it was the coolest thing on earth that I got to watch movies all day for my job. <laughs> like I have to go watch this to screen match it, and I'm, I'm, uh, I've they've used other words for me with that stuff. I reject stuff right, left, and center. I just find most things that come in I don't think are right, and and I I don't mince words. Like this is wrong. I I don't think most people are trying to be defrauding. I think they've been told a line, right? Wherever they got it, and they're passing it along, and. uh you know what are you what are you going to do? But um, it's definitely a buyer beware. There's also just a sense of a piece feeling right. I mm-hmm. know that there's just no way to put your put anything scientific with that. But right. there have been pieces that I've just someone's shown me, and it's just like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Like, yeah, it's just right. Like there's just something about it. It's right. Yeah, um, and it's wonderful when those pieces come along. But they're not as common, and they usually go for a lot more money. So, right now, how do you think eBay has changed this collecting area? And do you think it's um, sort of losing its luster with with people nowadays? Because I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't even, I rarely even look at eBay anymore because it's just so aggravating to see how much bad stuff is out there. So I kind of just avoid it unless someone points something out to me but what what are your thoughts on on ebay hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think which direction to go well on one front i think it was kind of the great equalizer mm-hmm. which i i like um mainly in the i think the movie poster to my eye the movie poster world was kind of most changed by ebay uh-huh um, because I think so many dealers had stockpiles of the 50s posters that they kind of controlled the market on it. Um, but once eBay came out, I mean, it was so apparent that there's just so many posters from that era. Right, right. You know, Elizabeth Taylor posters from the 50s are not particularly rare. Um, and, you know, now that she's passed away, I've seen things maybe bumping a little bit. But I think um, it's it's kind of been good on that front because it's kind of made it really honest. The true rarity of certain things has really revealed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bad part is, I, I think it's true. If if I had any trait of a collector, which I do for um, you know just information and research and and the catalogs, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, part of it is the thrill of the hunt. And right. I think you know I can liken it to the sports world, like all of the conventions and the autograph conventions they used to have, and people would gather in hotel ballrooms and swap and meet, and you kind of develop friendships and networks of people. Um, through the craft and the hobby, and I feel like that doesn't exist so much because there's not any real face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure friendships have developed through people who kind of met on eBay, but it's just not the same thing as having these. You know, they still have like the Beetle Fest right. in the Midwest or some of these big conventions, and I think Comic-Con is probably doing a lot to make up for that. Right. Um, I'm sure you have people that every time you're at Comic-Con, you kind of get together because yep. it's like a social gathering. Yeah. Um, but I feel like eBay may have kind of hurt that for a bit yeah but um as far as the the fraud end of things um i mean it's just 
it's given a lot of people with very little money the chance to think they own something that's real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, in my mind, it's, it's, um, and it's sad because there are real things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and, and, but at the end of the day, if there's really good things, you're going to get more money at an auction. Uh, right. Darren just had a piece that was this incredibly well-documented broken guitar neck that Kurt Cobain signed, and he broke it at the specific concert, and the guy was there, and the whole story is checked out. He has so much research on it and background, and he had it on eBay, and then he decided to take it down and consign it to Darren, and I think on eBay, he probably would have gotten 1800 bucks for it, Yeah, and it just sold in this last June auction for $32,000 mm-hmm. plus, so it's kind of like at the end of the day, if if it is that great, and it is real, and it's that well backed up, you're probably going to do better sending it through a marketing machine auction. Right. Well, it seems like the, the really good finds that appear on eBay are then in one auction house or another six months later anyway. Absolutely. There so. are dealers absolutely combing those listings, looking for, and that's the other really difficult part for the, the new kind of lay person who's getting mm-hmm. into it. You're up against people who have been doing this for 30 years. Right. And, you know, real stuff is not going to, flip past anyone's eye on eBay. There's enough dealers watching it because they know they can buy it and flip it and put it into a highly publicized auction. Right. And that's their living. That's what they do every day. Like it's their job. So right. if you're sitting at your real job <laughs> skimming listings over your lunch break, you're just not going to catch the stuff like right. someone like that unless you want to make a go of it. But, you know, even people who know what they're doing get ripped off in that, that forum. So, so, you know, it's the ultimate buyer beware. Yeah. Well, I've taken you over an hour. I'll ask you one last question. Sure. <laughs> Appreciate your time. Um, what What do you kind of see in the next few years with the hobby as far as trends and everything? I mean, I know there's, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of um, pieces sold for a lot of money, um, like the Marilyn Monroe dress at Profiles and the Thriller jacket at the Julian's auction. Um, you know, kind of where do you see things going from your vantage point given your experience um well i'm i'm actually i think somebody came down and actually took my crystal ball away from me because i never <laughs> suspected that the prices were going to do what they did in debbie reynolds so yeah i've i've my crystal privileges have been revoked but <laughs> um you know i i think that it's going to take a little bit of time for most consigners to reconcile that they're not debbie reynolds mm-hmm and while those prices were tremendous, there's a saying in the auction business, once a fluke, twice a trend, three times a market. Yeah. <laughs> um, <good. laughs> I think she had so many pieces in that sale that it drew the attention of people who can just, it's a ready-made museum. Right. Put up a roof and they're done. Right. Um, I don't know that we're going to see a repeat on a lot of those prices. I think that it, it's great for the industry. I think it definitely does move everything forward a notch. But I wonder if a single costume from any one of those, you know, a Marilyn Monroe costume in another multi-consigner sale that doesn't quite have the global attention that that one did, if it's still going to um, reach the same numbers. I I think Marilyn's kind of tough, though, because she's, like, separate from everybody else. Mm -hmm. I think the pieces I'd be more interested in are, you know, the items that were selling for, you know, the Mildred Pierce costume Debbie bought in 2001 at Sotheby's for $5,000 and flipped it in this sale for... I think it went, for, I don't, honestly, that one I don't remember, but I do remember <laughs> the, the Valentino Matador costume. She paid 30 for it at Sotheby's in 2001, had 
had it in the catalog for 60 to 80 and it hammered at 210,000. Wow. Will that continue? Where was where were the people who wanted it for 210 10 years ago? They they weren't on the market. So are they going to stick around and now be active participants? Mm-hmm. Or are they done? They got the stuff they wanted and they're they're back out and we're not going to see them again. If right. they stay involved, I think it's going to continue to push the prices. Um, I think that we're going to see a huge flood of Hollywood stuff now that that sale's happened because everyone's going to pull out every, you know, <laughs> Olivia de Havilland costume from any film they were on. Right. Well, that's the thing is I've gotten a lot of calls and emails from people saying, you know, hey, I have this, this, and this. What do you think they're worth now? And I'm just like, well, I don't know. But I, I kind of wonder if there might be even a little bit of a backlash in terms of maybe now more of the stuff will come out and there won't be the buyers there to, to pick it up. You I know? think a lot of that hinges on whether or not these people stay in it. Right. I mean, Margaret told me she sold Debbie in one of her Bonhams auctions, the uh, Elizabeth Taylor National Velvet Silks for $1,500 that sold for $60,000. Again, that was only three or five years ago, I think she said. So where, where were these people to bid against her when she picked it up for 1500 Right. Um, and, and if they are now realizing, oh, this stuff's really cool and they're going to stick around, then they're going to be driving up the price of everything. I don't know if they will, though. I just don't know that this is going to make it on their radar mm-hmm. uh, if it's not on Oprah, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so we'll see. But I think that's obviously, I think uh, we're going to see a huge flood of that kind of stuff hit the market. I think there'll be a period of adjustment. I think maybe people following on the heels of Debbie will think things that they would have thought were expensive before are great bargains now. Right. And it'll still continue to drive the prices up, but they, it will eventually, I think, reach a, a stabilizing moment. I think um, we all keep waiting for the Michael Jackson wave to crash, and it just keeps growing. <laughs> it's just yeah. amazing how the... I, I've never... I don't think there's anything in the history of this entire market where somebody on one day was worth this much, and the very next day mm-hmm. was worth ten times that, and it happened. Right overnight so you know no signs of slowing on that front i think the emerging markets are going to be interesting i think um you know you always have to look at what what's nostalgic to the people who have money mm-hmm. they're collecting and i think you know i'm in my late 30s so i'm feeling like uh the stuff that's nostalgic from my youth like the a-team and all those fun <laughs> terrible 80s tv shows um yeah. who knows like is there anything even to discover from there um Things always come out of the woodwork 20 years later. Everyone thinks that it's gone, and then suddenly everyone's nostalgic about it, and people start pulling it out of their closets. And my dad worked on the set decoration for this film and has the XYZ. Um, I think punk is an emerging area that's really started to slowly take hold. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of like Ramones things popping up in auctions, and you know, of course the Sex Pistols. and Yeah. Uh I, I think it's the right time for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the people who are listening to it are now probably in their 50s. Right. Um, and that's the way that works. So that kind of seems to be an emerging area. But obviously the, the global reach of everything is, is spreading out. Um, you know, we've talked about Darren's doing sales in China. Mm-hmm. So that's always interesting. Um, you know, the rock and roll stuff, which we didn't really specifically talk about too much, but, um, you know, I, I, I kind of am in the camp that 
there are less multiples in the rock and roll world. I mean, right. it's just, uh, there's more stuff to do with someone's life because it's more icon-based. I feel like in, in film, you can have people who just like a certain film right. or a certain uh, franchise. But with rock and roll, it's like, I like that person, that right. rock god. So it's anything that that person has touched. Right, right. So it just expands the, the variety of things you could be selling um, mm-hmm. to do with them. Anything that has a remote connection to that person. Um, right. Well, that's like, you know, with movies, it's what was touched and used kind of during the production that you see on screen, whereas with, with rock and roll, I mean, they're living their movie, you know, so it's pretty much anything is of interest, you yeah. know, whether it's, they use it on stage in the studio, wore it to some awards show, you know, it's all, um, cause they're, they're not a character. I mean, they are the character, whereas, you know, actors play a character. They are the person, you know, always that, of interest. Right. So, yeah. And and I, I think agree. it's harder when you approach a kind of a, like, um, I worked on the Johnny Cash. Well, I, we were, I worked on a, um, appraisal for, for it before he had ever passed away and before Sotheby's eventually did that sale. And in trying to put the, the objects of someone's life, like Johnny Cash, who's had such a long career, you know, I had to read two or three biographies because I had to understand <laughs> every important moment in his life. Mm-hmm. to know what it was that you're looking at. And um, I'll never forget there was a, a, um, a safe in his office at the time, and there was an odd manila envelope that had cotton. And to just a, you know, a native eye going, why, what, this has no value. And then I was reading his biography on the plane home and just burst into tears because I'm reading the whole scene about how after his brother passed away, they were so poor, they had to just get back out in the fields and keep picking cotton because they couldn't afford to take one day off to grieve the loss of his brother. Hmm. And he said, and to this day, he, he remembers the cotton. And I'm thinking, wow. oh, my God. <laughs> like that, Suddenly, that little envelope takes on this huge uh, level of importance in this person's life that they really kind of kept around a reminder of where they came from. And mm-hmm. um, So it's, it's harder, I think, on some level to catalog... Uh, rock musician's life because you have to know everything right like oh that could be from that such and such when there was the drug arrest down south with the stones (laughs) there's just so much to know it's it's unbelievable yeah very interesting so if people want to get in touch with you is the best way to go to your website yeah my email address is on there Um, okay i travel a lot i'm doing a bunch of roadshow tapings this summer so i won't be around so much, but um, yeah, I'm in and out, but I always respond to emails. Oh, yeah, I did want to ask you about that. So, when, how did you get involved in the road show? Um, I was, I met one of the uh, people who actually owns the show in the United States, and they were, they were looking for people on collectibles table, which is the one I've participated in. Which is <laughs> talk about expanding your mind. <laughs> <laughs> It's not really as specific as, you know, what I normally do, which is the entertainment stuff, but um, uh-huh. it could be anything from uh, a vintage Zippo lighter to a 1800s bloodletting <laughs> with razors in it to cut your skin. Um, and I'm not kidding. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, but I, it's exhausting, but I really enjoyed doing it because it um, is 12 hours of nonstop looking at stuff that you may have never seen before or you have seen before. It's kind of hones you in on 
the value of things. And it's just, a, you know, when you constantly have to look at something from the angle of what is this worth in a monetary sense, mm-hmm. it's just like the best school ever. <laughs> I learned more in wow. those days than I do in months. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, I'd love to keep talking to you, but I don't want to keep you all day. <laughs> so <laughs> right. maybe we'll do it again sometime. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to share so much information. It's really fascinating. So I appreciate all your efforts in the hobby and trying to keep everyone honest and do good analysis of everything. So thanks so yeah, much. People have catalogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring them in. We'll, we'll keep the archive going and add to the prices realized. It's always good to have more information. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com. Thirsty. <laughs>